Good morning. If you don't know me, I'm Anthony. I'm the pastor here at Valley Hope. A uh, couple things before I get started here, continuing in our series. Um, one is just to, to remind you that uh, we are in the middle of a search for a director of children's ministry. Um, and the job description for that position is on our website. If you're not taking a look at that, you should um, take a look at that, read it, pray about it. Uh, and if nothing else, pray for us as we go through the process of trying to fill that position. Um, but also, see if you read that job description and think, uh, you know, does this land on somebody in your mind? You think, oh, this person would be great at it. And maybe that person is you. Um, uh, whoever it is, though, um, I, we would love to, to hear from you and hear your resume. Or even if you just uh, have thoughts about, about that job please come talk to us. Come talk to an elder. We'd love to, to talk with you about that. Um, this week, um, Willa McClellan is, uh, is going on a mission trip, and Willa has been part of our church since she was this big-ish, um, and that's from the stage, not from the ground. She's, you understand. Very small, and uh, now she's going off on mission trips, and um, we we uh, we want to pray for her. Um, she's going to stay where she is. She's not going to come up here. Can, Willa, can you just raise your hand? Just like, whoosh. okay, there you go. You can put it back down. Um, that's Willa right there. Um, she's going with uh, Trinity Perez's youth group to Chattanooga to work with a center there that uh, helps to address poverty at both an immediate and a long-term way. And uh, so she'll, they'll be doing service projects with that organization in Chattanooga and then also running a community VBS. Uh, so you know she needs prayer um, if she's running VBS. Um, but we want to pray for her now uh, that she feels sent, that she knows that her church family loves her. We want to pray for what's going to happen in Chattanooga for the work there and that they would come back safely. So would you pray with me? Um, close your eyes if you would like. You don't have to. Um, Father, we thank you for what you are doing in Chattanooga through this ministry, that you, um, you care for people who are often unseen, and we thank you that you send your people in uh, to, to administer the justice of the kingdom into places that are hungry for it, whether they know it or not. And God, we pray for this ministry there that's in Chattanooga. We pray that you would bless it. Uh, and that you would multiply it and make them successful, that the bellies would be filled and that people would be educated and restored and put into places where they can move uh, and advance beyond the walls of poverty. Father, we pray that you would be with this youth group that's going. We specifically ask that your hand would be on Willa. We pray, God, that you would open her eyes and her ears, that she would see and hear where you are moving, and that she would follow your spirit. God, lift her up. Give her energy. Be with that group. Help them to have uh, good communication amongst each other. Uh, keep out the drama that can come when you're traveling with people for anything more than a day. Um, God, we pray that you'd bless them with safe travel that they would be, uh, in some sense, appropriately in danger, that they would be ready to be upset and upended by you. 
and yet very much safe with you as they do that. Thank you, Jesus. Bring her back full of love for you and ready to do likewise as she comes home. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Um, Today is July 1st, and uh, we'll have Rick's uh, July 2nd party for all of Black Mountain this week, and I understand that uh, barbecue was being um, prepared with love and affection for the past two days in preparation for that. I couldn't go to be a part of that. I was on vacation with my family, Um, but you know that that meat will fill your belly and your soul. Um, And obviously all of uh, that is... Uh, in, in preparation for Fourth of July fest- festivities, you know, I, I would encourage you if you've never done Fourth of July in downtown Black Mountain, you should. It's fun. It's a lot of fun. Uh, the fireworks always seem to take forever to get started, but then they're always wonderful. Um, my my kids have never been disappointed until the moment that it's over, and I tell them I have to go to bed. Um, I want to encourage us as, as citizens of this country to, to move into 4th of July with, with our eyes open and our hearts uh, attuned and paying, paying attention. Always, when you're in the midst of culture, culture is always acting on you. And you're not just in it and in a, uh, participating like you're a customer and you can get what you want and that's it. You get a lot of things that you don't bargain for. And so one of the things that you have to pay attention to is holidays. I mean, at Christmas time, we know this is true, right? Christmas, you don't want to just celebrate Christmas the way the world is teaching you to celebrate Christmas. That's an obvious one. We don't want to be consumeristic people who have basically no need for Jesus and a lot of need for new things. Well, similarly, when the 4th of July comes, we should engage that holiday as a specific kind of people, Jesus people. And one thing that we should feel on 4th of July is gratitude. God has uh, put us here, and Paul preaches that in Acts 17, that God intends providentially to put people where they are. God has put us here, and we have real benefits of being here in this country. My, um, I was... A month ago, I was sitting across the table from my great aunt, who uh, came here from Cuba in the in the fifties, and uh, talked to her about my grandfather, who also came from from Cuba, as did my grandmother. And um, by the way, I, I know I'm more tan than usual. I, this is like my proof that I actually am half Cuban. Um, <laughs> it's only when I spend time in the sun. Um, but we were talking about what it was like for them, and they came here out of absolute abject poverty. Um, and my, my grandfather worked his tail off and earned a better life for his family that wasn't possible for him in Cuba. And probably, frankly, wouldn't have been possible for him in a lot of other places. It's because of certain blessings here in this place that we should be grateful for. I am personally grateful for. My family's story would be very different if I lived in a different place. 
But, you know, I, I was also two weeks ago in Memphis, Tennessee, at the National Civil Rights Museum. And it's a very visible reminder that our country has often not been what it pretends to be, that what it says about itself. Oftentimes, the, the freedoms that we celebrate and proclaim and sort of, on Fourth of July, boastfully proclaim about ourselves, um, those things have been parceled out to basically a certain class of people, mostly just white people. It was only 50 years ago that Martin Luther King Jr. was shot on a hotel balcony. 50 years ago. My dad was a kid when that happened. Um, and there's plenty more in the news that should remind you that the, the sort of hymns to the nation that we will sing on July 4th do not tell the whole story. They tell things that we should be grateful for as people, but they are by no means the whole story. So Christians on 4th of July, you don't have to like burn flags. You don't have to either forget our history. We can be grateful for what God has given us. And at the same time, we can take that moment to, to repent as well. I pray that we would be citizens of this country who first and foremost understand their identity as citizens of the kingdom of Jesus. And we pray that the kingdom of Jesus would, would press down on our own country and correct what needs to be corrected so that, that more and more we can see the evidence of Jesus' goodness and reign extending uh, to every corner of the earth. So my encouragement to you is on the 4th of July, be grateful to God. Not, not, not a flag uh, or any piece of a history book, but be grateful to God for all that he has given us here in this place. So that is truly a blessing from God. And second, pray that God might use us to be a people that helps this country become more what we say that we want to be. Does that make sense? That is, that is in line oftentimes with the mission of Jesus. We want to be a part of that people. That is how I think Christians should view this particular holiday and how we engage in it and celebrate it appropriately. I just want to pray for us. I want to, I want to pray for our country. You know, I don't, I don't know if you do that, regularly. I don't know that I do it regularly enough. Uh, it is appropriate for Christians to not just pray for their friends and their family and their town, but their country. And right now, our country needs prayer. Uh, it needs action on, from the people of God, but it, it needs prayer behind and before and in that action as well. So will you pray for me? Not pray for me. You can pray for me. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, you are the king over every nation. And you love the people of every nation. And you rule in heaven, on earth, over a kingdom that cannot be shaken. But Lord Jesus, we, we confess to you that we are often shaky in our, in our citizenship identity. We can often forget whose kingdom we are first a citizen of. 
So Father, I pray that you would confirm in our hearts and our minds that first and foremost, you are our king. That is the primary shaper of our identity. But Father, as people who you have put in this country, we pray for our nation. We pray for all of those who govern over us in Black Mountain, Swannanoa, in Buncombe County, in North Carolina, in the United States. We pray for our local, local citizens, and we pray for the aldermen, and we pray for our state representatives and senators. We pray for the representatives and senators in Congress. We pray for the president of this country. We pray, God, that you would pour out your wisdom on them that you would give divine gifts of good wisdom that all people might benefit from a flourishing common good. We pray, God, that our country would see a church, this church, all churches, lead in the forefront. We pray that this country would see the church of Jesus Christ in the, in the United States of America care deeply about our communities, about our country, that we would move to be servants and, and redeemers and transformers of institutions and communities and common places. We pray, God, that the church here would grow and flourish so that all of this country might grow and flourish. We pray, God, that you would bless us not for our own good, but for the good of all people. And not just so that all people can benefit, but that all people might in turn see Jesus as the true and rightful King over heaven and earth who extends a far more gracious and eternal reign to all who would come and respond. We pray, God, that you would heal our country. Help us to identify and repent of sin. Help us to be more just. Help us to be more peaceful. Help us, God, to be more generous. Help our communities to be knit together instead of rent apart. And Father, we know that many people are seeking after those things. Many of them not in Your name. We pray, God, that you would help us, your church, know how to collaborate with people who have rejected you. But also, God, we pray that you would help us to lead towards those things in a better and truer and deeper way because we do it in submission to you, Lord Jesus. We thank you that our freedom comes from you, God. And we remember our brother Andrew Brunson in jail in Turkey. And we know that he is, though imprisoned, free in you. And similarly, God, we pray that you would remind us that our freedom is forever promised to us because of you and your work. You have won for us what we could not win for ourselves. Lord Jesus, be with us this morning. Open our hearts and our ears. Help us to hear from you, our King. 
Stir up our affections for you, Lord Jesus. Lift yourself high. Amen. If you would, turn to 2 Samuel 18. This will also be uh, on the screen behind me. I do think it's worth it if you, if you have your Bible to turn and look at the one that's in front of you. It's good to put your hands on the thing that you're reading. But if you don't have one of those, one, we'd like to help you with that at the back table. Two, we've got, got it for you here this morning. I came back from the beach yesterday and my right ear is like totally blocked, so I have no idea how loud I am. If you would be my voice modulation, that'd be great. I have no idea where I am. It turns out two ears really are better than one. 2 Samuel 18, we'll start at verse 4. The king said to them, whatever seems best to you, I'll do. So the king stood at the side of the gate while all the army marched out by hundreds and by thousands. And the king, this is David, ordered Joab and Abishai and Etai, deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave orders to all the commanders about Absalom. So the army went out into the field against Israel and the battle was fought in the forest of Ephraim. And the men of Israel were defeated there by the servants of David, and the loss there was great on that day, 20,000 men. The battle spread over the face of all the country, and the forest devoured more people that day than the sword. And Absalom happened to meet the servants of David. Absalom was riding on his mule, and the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak, and his head caught fast in the oak, and he was suspended between heaven and earth, while the mule that was under him went on. And a certain man saw it and told Joab, Behold, I saw Absalom hanging in an oak. Joab said to the man who told him, What, what you saw him? Why then did you not strike him there to the ground? I would have been glad to give you ten pieces of silver and a belt. But the man said to Joab, Even if I felt in my hand the weight of a thousand pieces of silver, I would not reach out my hand against the king's son. For in our hearing, the king commanded you and Abishai and Ittai, for my sake, protect the young man, Absalom. On the other hand, if I had dealt treacherously against his life, and there's nothing hidden from the king, then you yourself would have stood aloof. Joab said, I will not waste time like this with you. And he took three javelins in his hand and thrust them into the heart of Absalom while he was still alive in the oak. And ten young men, Joab's armor bearers, surrounded Absalom and struck him and killed him. Then Joab blew the trumpet, and the troops came back from pursuing Israel, for Joab restrained them. And they took Absalom and threw him into a great pit in the forest and raised over him a great heap of stones. And all Israel fled, every one to his own home. Now Absalom in his lifetime had taken and set up for himself the pillar that is the king's valley, that is in the king's valley. For he said, I have no son to keep my name in remembrance. He called the pillar after his own name, and is called Absalom's Monument to this day. And we're going to skip ahead. The men then try to figure out how to tell David that his son, Absalom, who he's explicitly said, don't kill, has been killed. And this is the end of them finagling that process. 
Then Ahimaaz cried out to the king, all is well, and he bowed before the king with his face to the earth and said, blessed be the Lord your God who has delivered up the men who raised their hand against my lord the king. And the king said, is it well with the young man Absalom? Ahimaaz answered, when Joab sent the king's servant, your servant, I saw a great commotion, but I do not know what it was. And the king said, turn aside and stand here. So he turned aside and stood still. Behold, the Cushite came. And the Cushite said, Good news for my lord, the king. For the Lord has delivered you this day from the hand of all who rose up against you. The king said to the Cushite, Is it well with the young man, Absalom? And the Cushite answered, May the enemies of my lord, the king, and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. And the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, Oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, would I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. David, uh, his grief continues in the next eight verses in chapter 19, such that his, his partner, his commander, Joab, has to come and basically slap him across the face metaphorically. And so you need to get yourself together and lead these people, basically saying, or oh, I'm going to do it for you. But David is overcome by his grief for his son. Remember, all of this is, is happening at the, the end of a saga of David's family being torn apart, which starts with David's own violence. David takes for himself a wife that is already somebody's wife. He kills her husband. And then we see that kind of violence play out in his own family. One son against a daughter, and then Absalom against that son. And then Absalom rises up to take his father's throne away from him. And it is only by the providential care of God that David is preserved at all. David's got two counselors in his camp, Hushai and Hithophel. And one of them turns against him, but Hushai stays in Absalom's camp but is acting as a spy. And basically what happens in 2 Samuel 18 only happens because Hushai has delayed Absalom. The plan has worked. Hushai the spy has done his work. God preserves David long enough for David to gather a pretty large army to go then and do what Absalom had been thinking he was going to do to his father. So everything has become a mess. Just as David was promised by the prophet Nathan. When Nathan confronts him in sin, he tells him the sword will not depart from his household. So we see here the sword very much in play, right? Absalom is a man who takes action. Absalom uh, took action on behalf of his wronged sister because his father would do nothing. Absalom inserts himself into the gates of the city to step into a position that should rightly be his father's, but Absalom circumvents him and wins the hearts of the people of Israel over to himself. Absalom is ready to go to war to hold on to what he feels should be rightfully his. And in some sense, it is kind of rightfully his. Going down the order of succession... We're falling on Absalom. In some sense, Absalom should be the next king. And Absalom seeks to secure what he feels should be his. 
Now we know that God has decided to choose, as he often does, a younger son. But Absalom doesn't care about any of that. He says, I know what should be mine, and I will claim it. Now the, the text has earlier set us up for the death of Absalom. We were told earlier, a few chapters earlier, this little detail about Absalom, that he has this flowing mane of hair. It's very long, and he only cuts it once a year, and he, when he weighs it every year, it's five pounds of hair that he has grown every year, this waving mane. Now, the text doesn't explicitly say that it was his hair that is his undoing, but when it says that his head was caught in the oak, the implication is that his hair is the thing that gets entangled in these branches, and he is then hanging, dangling from this branch by his hair. Now, I have never been in this particular circumstance, um, even when I had longer hair, but my, my understanding based on brushing young girls' hair is that this would be excruciating, <laughs> because brushing hair is also excruciating. And so he is sort of wriggling there in the pain of, of being caught in the tree. And then David's men do what they are not supposed to do. Because David has told them not to act against his son. But Joab here, we've seen him on the fringes of all these stories acting and this, as this schemer who has an idea about how power should be secured and for whom it should be secured. So Joab seems to lay aside his plans for somebody else and maybe himself to come into power and says, well, I got to keep this David guy alive. We just got to do what needs to be done. We got to kill Absalom. So Joab then takes the reins. He steps in to a place of authority where he does not belong. And they kill Absalom. Absalom is undone by seemingly the same thing that has possessed him. This, I must take control impulse. And it is with deep irony that the text notes for us that it is his, vain, his vanity that is his undoing. It is his hair that is the thing that entraps him. And this is actually how things go for most of us. His hair is in and of itself no bad thing. In fact, many of us in this room would say, I wish I had that gift, that flowing mane. I do not have that flowing mane. It's never coming back. Many of us would look and say, I wish I could have that kind of gift. Absalom clearly values this thing on his head, this symbol of his blessing and authority. And there is nothing wrong in and of itself with his hair. This is not a sermon about get a haircut. Oftentimes, the things that are gifts to us can very easily and quickly become the things that are snares to us. Because very often we take what is given to us as a gift and we decide that we love that thing more than the one who gave us that gift. Or very often we take the thing that is a gift and we make it for us a proclamation, a statement of our own worth our own 
statement of worthiness to the world. You should think highly of me because whatever. I know, I know this works for me all the time. I, I, I have a pretty good handle on, on what I am good at. And it is very easy to turn something that I am good at, something that I've been gifted with, into a means by which I either make other people believe I am amazing or a means by which people forget that I did not make for myself the thing that I am using. I can talk my way around people easily. This is the side of my gift. I, I stand and I talk for a living. I, I am willing to put money down that I am better at talking than just about anybody in this room. I am literally a professional talker. Now, not conversationalist. I'm a professional talker. And I have been in circumstances where I know it is so easy to subtly manipulate the conversation to go exactly where I want it to go. And guess who ends up being the hero? Me. And that is vanity. Nobody experiences that with me more often than my wife. When we were first married, I would do this naturally without thinking in the middle of an argument where she had approached me for what I had done wrong, and by the end of it, she's apologizing to me. Now we've been married for 12 years, and she's like, no, 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 no. We, we, we are not playing that game. I don't care how you can talk your way around me. I don't care if you go forwards or backwards. I don't care about your tricks. You're wrong, and you need to say you're sorry. And deep inside me, I know she is correct. She is right. But it is easy for me to take what has been a gift to me and make it about me and for me and then becomes a snare for me because I have somehow bought into the lie that I am worthy of attention, I am worthy of affection, I am worthy of exaltation as if I conjured my gift out of thin air, out of my own genius. And you have that same ability. It may not be about talking. I don't know what your gifting is. I'm not saying that you should look at your gifting and, and, and try to hide it away or, or be afraid of it or, or scared of it. What I am saying you should be suspicious of is of yourself. You should view yourself at all times with a little bit of suspicion because it is easy to take what is a gift and turn it into a snare. And the way that that happens is the way that Absalom and Joab have, have used their gifts in these circumstances. When you alter the story so that you must take control and enter the place of ruling and reigning in your life. Well, this needs to be done. Somebody's got to do this. I see the way that things should be 
in my life and everybody else's life. Let me jump in, take the reins, and control things to the way they should be. Then you are in the territory where your gifts become a prison because you start to use them for your own ends. This is, of course, the message in many ways of Lord of the Rings. If you read the Lord of the Rings, you know that the Ring of Power actually does have power. It can be used to do big, important things. But the Ring of Power cannot be worn without corrupting the one who wears it. And the temptation is that good people will will take what is good, what is powerful, and try to use it for good, believing themselves to be impervious to the lure of the ring. We're, We're waiting in this long story for the one who is worthy to wear the ring. And the message of the book, spoiler alert, is no one. No one can wear the ring and not be mastered by it. When you do not view yourself with that kind of suspicion, you are in danger. You are in dangerous territory. And what often happens is that God will undermine you. That's, that we are told this, that the God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. God opposes the kind of people who put their hands on their gifting and uses it for their own ends. Now God is often doing this graciously and for your own good and your own benefit. And what's most humbling is that he will often do it in the most surprising, unforeseen ways. Notice how Absalom's plan is undone. It's not just that his hair got caught in a tree. It's that the whole army got caught in trees. Maybe I pulled that Lord of the Rings illustration out because this is so Lord of the Rings. But listen to verse 8 and 18. The battle spread over the face of all the country and the forest devoured more people that day than the sword. The language there is that the forest ate people. That's what it says. The forest ate the people. I don't know how that happened. I don't know if there's mouths that just swallowed them up. Or, but the forest killed more people than the sword that day. Absalom did not ride into the forest, was not herded into the forest thinking, man, I better watch out for those trees. Those trees are going to get me today. He rode into the forest, and the forest opposed him and consumed him. And very often... You think that you are safe manipulating the world, taking the reins of the world in your own name for the purpose of your own reign, and out of nowhere, the most unforeseen thing will come and humble you and bring you to your knees. Now, in this instance, judgment comes to Absalom. But in other instances, God will graciously oppose you and bring you to your knees and it will be to defer judgment from you. It will be to save you from judgment. But God is the God who can oppose you in the most unforeseen ways. And notice here the, the deep harm that is wrought. There is violence everywhere. David now has lost 
two sons in these stories. And he is heartbroken. He was heartbroken when Amnon was killed. And David now is heartbroken when Absalom is killed. You can just hear the grief in the language of it. My son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I have died instead of you? Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. He repeats that same refrain in that beginning section of chapter 19. There is destruction and violence everywhere. And it will keep going because Joab will also continue this legacy. But this is not the only promise that God has made. God has promised David that in judgment, the sword will not depart from his household. But this is not the only promise that God has made to David. In fact, there is a a promise that comes previous to that that is more important. When God makes a covenant with David, And he says that he will establish his household forever. And that his son will sit on the throne forever. And that God will establish a father-son relationship with David's household forever. And the promise, the faithfulness to that promise overrides even the word of judgment that has been spoken against David's household. And in fact, this word of promise, this covenant to David, will echo down through David's line when David's sons and grandsons and great-grandsons and generation after generation of men who will trace their line to David will fall deeper and deeper and deeper down this hole of wickedness and betrayal and bloodshed. And still the word of promise that God spoke to David will hold fast and will hold true. So even here when we see this word of judgment that is fulfilled in David's own lifetime, even though we see David's own household ripped apart, that is not the whole story. Because in and through David's story is a much, much larger story. It is the story of God extending His reign into the whole world. David is for us a look into the heart of a father king who mourns the death of his children. He is overcome with grief over his son, the betrayer. His son dies suspended between heaven and earth, hung on a tree like a cursed man, pierced on the side and through the heart by the javelins of the son of the king's men. He is then thrown in a hole covered with stones like a man who has been stoned and forgotten like the sinner that he is. But the promise that God speaks to David will still hold fast. Because one day, the king, instead of putting the betrayer's son on the tree to be hung and and cursed, the king will put his own son. The son and the king conspire together to 
crawl up on the tree Himself to be hung between heaven and earth that men might be reconciled to God. Jesus is treated as the betraying Son even though He and His Father have conspired together to overcome our own betrayal. It is you and I who are like Absalom who take uh, take the reins from God's hand and persistently insist that we are the ones who should rule the kingdom. We are the ones who should be sitting in power and authority. We are the ones who know best, who can do best, who will do best, and we will do it whether you are on the throne or not. In fact, get off the throne. We will sit on the throne of our own lives and rule how we see fit. We are the betraying son, consumed by our own vanity, consumed by our own need to celebrate ourselves, to build the world around ourselves. We are the ones who should be hanging from the tree by our own vanity, waiting for the judgment of God. But it is the promise of the God who promises to David that he will establish his kingdom. It is that God who comes into our story, takes us from the place of cursing, and puts himself there so that the cry for the betrayed son need not be poured out over us anymore. It is instead the son of the true king that cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus takes on the desolation and betrayal of our own sin, though He is the innocent actor in it all. And Jesus, hung there between heaven and earth, is pierced for our transgressions, that we might be healed by His stripes. And they take Jesus' body down from the cross and they throw it into the pit and they cover it with stone. And there, our fate is sealed. Sealed with Him in death. And when Jesus rolls back the stone from that pit, He rolls back for us all of the weight of sin and death that we have stored up for ourselves and instead carries us into His Father's house that we need not be separated from this place of peace from the place of the King anymore. Jesus is in front of you this morning What you deserve is His death. And what He gives you is His life. No matter the judgment that you have been busy accruing for yourself, God's covenant faithfulness outshines your betrayal. Jesus is more faithful than you are traitorous. 
If you are enmeshed and entrapped in sin this morning, whether you call yourself a Christian or not, you are not being invited to read this story and figure out how to behave better. Because judgment has already been sealed for you. And there's nothing that you can do on your own to undo it. The story stands in front of you. Absalom's death stands before you. Jesus' death stands before you. So that you might receive the gracious love of a father king who will bring you home out of the goodness and faithfulness of his own heart. If you are weighted down with sin this morning, look at the cross. If you are trapped by looking at yourself all the time, constantly obsessed with yourself, the cross is here this morning. Jesus is here this morning to deliver you and to bring you home. Jesus wants for you to trust Him to do what you could not do. To be what you could not be. Let Him bring you home to be with the King this morning. Turn to Him. Repent. And let Him carry you into the kingdom so that you might sit with Him forever and ever as His Son or his daughter. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, you are the king that we needed. You are the king that Israel needed. You are the king that we have always needed. The ways that we fail you, the ways that we fail to stack up, God, the they're a long, long list. But God, You have been kind to us. God, I pray that this morning You would help us to hear Your voice. That we would see the cross standing before us. That we would see Jesus standing before us pierced for our transgressions crucified, died, buried, and triumphantly risen again. Jesus, I pray that you would help us to see your foot on the neck of our enemies, delivering us from all the sin that we have given ourselves over, over to and all the sin that has been piled upon us. We thank You, Jesus, for taking all of the curse of sin upon You, making us a blessed people instead of cursed. God, I pray for everyone who is here, whether they call themselves one of Your people or not, I pray that they would sense You standing before them, warmly beckoning them home, that You have always been the faithful Father King, who's extended the faithfulness and warmth that you have for your Son even to the, the people of your Son. God, I pray for all of those who spiritually 
are fatherless and who have never heard their father weep over them, pleading for them to be home with him. Let us respond, God, by your Holy Spirit. Open our hands, God, that we might receive your grace, trusting you to do what we could not. You are great and glorious, Lord Jesus. You could have showed your great glory through power and might, riding in with flashings of thunder, like Psalm 18 describes, described for us, and in the unexpected, unexpected display of your glory was you crucified. Your power was you crucified and risen, triumphing over death. There is no one like you, Lord Jesus. Help us to believe that, to live like that, to trust you because of that. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen.